Hello, and welcome to Accountability Talks with AGA. I'm your host, Paul Marshall. Today, we're talking to the CFO of the FDIC, Mr. Brett Edwards, and we'll talk about how the uh, FDIC has faced some challenges with the rest of us, inflation and all kinds of things happening, and uh, it was a great talk with some great insights, and without further ado, let's talk to Brett. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. All right, well, today we have an exciting one. We have the CFO from the FDIC, Mr. Brett Edwards, on the line, and uh, we're going to talk to him about all, all, all kinds of topics. But uh, before that, so let's just say hello. Brett, how are you doing today? Great, Paul. How are you? Doing good, doing good. All, all right. right. Yeah, so great to have you here. Um, I know you've done some uh, AGA uh, luncheons for us in the past, the DC chapter. Appreciate that, and uh, we thought you'd be a great guest for this, too. So thanks for being here today. Happy to be here. Thank you. All right. Well, why don't we just start off, uh, maybe give our audience a little bit about yourself. Tell us about what you do and a little bit more about the FDIC. Sure. Um, and thanks again for having me. And uh, I'm going to start with my you know, usual disclaimer that uh, all my thoughts and opinions are my own and don't represent the official policy of the FDIC. So let's get that out of the way. But uh Anyway, I've, uh, I've been at the FDIC a little over 34 years, um, and uh, I've worked extensively um, as a manager and executive, both in the bank resolutions area as well as the finance area for most of my career. So I was fortunate enough to uh, have gone through two banking crises, uh, one in the late uh, 80s and early 90s, which was sort of the savings and loan crisis, although there was a lot of bank failures then as well. And then, uh, of course, in 2008, 9, and, and 10, and so on. So uh, in any event, uh, I did run the resolutions area um, from 2011 till about 2019. And about the middle of 2019, I became the uh, CFO here at the FDIC, which was about eight months before the pandemic hit. So <laughs> very interesting timing. Uh, anyway, I, I love the fields of uh, finance and accounting always something new and interesting to learn and, uh, you know, a lot of unique problems to solve. So I'm, I'm having a great time uh, at the FDIC serving as a CFO. And um, I can tell you a little bit, just so your uh, listeners know, and I'm sure we've all heard of the FDIC, but I'll just give you a little primer on it real quick. Um, we're all pretty familiar with the FDIC symbol that you see displayed prominently at most insured financial institutions throughout the country. And, um, you know, the question is, uh, what does that mean? It means your money's safe up to the insured limit, and that should bring you peace of mind, and, and it brings peace of mind to the millions of Americans that have money on deposit at the banks around the country. So, you know, since its founding in 1933, uh, we always like to remind people nobody's ever lost a penny of their insured deposit when a bank has failed. And we are immensely proud of that, and we know uh, how greatly our record in that regard has contributed to the um, to the country's financial stability. People don't need to worry about the safety of their insured deposits. So, more formally, um, the FDIC's mission is to main, uh, maintain stability and public confidence in the nation's financial system. So, how do we go about doing that? Well, we insure the deposits, as I said. We do examine uh, supervised financial institutions, not just for safety and soundness, but also for consumer protection. 
Uh, and then we do work to make uh, large and complex financial institutions more resolvable. And finally, we manage these failed bank receiverships in the unfortunate event that, that banks fail. Um, you know, we were created back in 33, as I mentioned, in, in response to thousands of bank failures that occurred in the late 1920s and early 1930s. Uh, and, you know, your listeners should know that we are not um, appropriated. We're funded by the insurance premiums that we collect from the banks. So we don't use taxpayer funding. And that's a somewhat distinct operating model within the federal government. It gives us, uh, affords us some freedom and flexibility to operate uh, a little more with a little more flexibility and respond rapidly in times of crisis. Um, but I would say if you look back at our, um, our role and performances in the last two financial crises that I mentioned, I think you'll agree that uh, FDIC played a pretty valuable role in saving up what could have been much more significant uh, financial calamity. So that's that's why I'm proud to be a senior leader here, and I've chosen to remain at the FDIC so long. Well, that's sort of a thumbnail sketch on FDIC. Yeah, great. Appreciate that. So, yeah, no, this your, your agency is one of those that affects pretty much anybody that has a bank account, which is a large number, vast majority of us in the country. So that's, that's a good thing. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit. So you said you had been at the FDIC through some challenging times. I think we'd all agree the last couple of years have been pretty challenging. And this year, you know, it's got its, its, its own new challenges. Uh, maybe, <laughs> yeah, just get your, you know, your thoughts on how you're dealing with a couple of these things. You know, obviously, I think inflation is one of the, the really big sure. things that's hitting all of us. And uh, maybe you can even talk about some macro things like what's going on in Ukraine or just how these things are affecting you guys at FDIC. Sure. Um, uh, no, that's great, great question, great topic. So let's start talking just about the economy. You know, go back in your own mind to early 2020. Um, economy was, you know, January, even into February, the economy was doing well, financial markets were healthy, and boom, you know, COVID hit us uh, full force in mid-March. And, um, you know, look, the measures we took to protect the health and safety of the American public were extraordinary. I mean, we, you know, we shut down large sections of the economy, uh, and the consequences of those shutdowns uh, were severe. No question about it. Sort of an unprecedented reaction to an unprecedented uh, health situation. Uh, so, you know, speaking of unprecedented, the president, the Congress, Federal Reserve, they all took measures to ameliorate the impact of the shutdown, and I think those were largely successful. Um, you know, but the measures themselves had unintended consequences. You know, the Fed blew up its balance sheet, and uh, certainly we did a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of guarantees and spending to prop up the economy uh, because people were getting harmed uh, through no fault of their own. I mean, this virus, uh, you know, sort of raged through the country, and we had to do what we had to do. But certainly one of those unintended consequences was, uh, you know, certainly the inflation we're all experiencing today. And, and I would just say, there are a lot of um, uh, analyses out there by people much smarter than me about you know, what exactly is causing or what has caused and is continuing to cause the inflation we're experiencing. So I won't try and uh, best those particular analysts. I just say that obviously, you know, all the spending that occurred um, to stave off the economic consequences of the, of the virus, uh, as well as what the Federal Reserve did, you know, that one of those unintended consequences, we've got some now that we have to deal with. 
and I would um, preface my remarks with just uh, dating myself. So <laughs> I graduated from college in the early 1980s. It must be a bad timing, but um, that was during the last period of high inflation. So, you know, Paul Volcker was running the Federal Reserve at that time, and he had the really unpleasant task of reigning in an inflation that was, was raging pretty, pretty strongly. And he did it successfully, uh, but not without significant cost. I mean, it was this, a really bad recession that resulted from the, uh, you know, the interest rate policies that the Fed adopted at that time. And believe me, it was no fun looking for my first job out of college when the Fed funds rate was in the high teens, you know, and the U.S. was experiencing a, a really deep recession. Um, but my point in bringing all that up is um, until recently, um, you know, and I'm talking about in the last, uh, you know, six to eight to 10, 12 months, we really enjoyed 40 years of relative price stability in the country. And we're so used to the certainty uh, and the many benefits that that price stability brings to the economy. It just, you know, again, as a CFO, um, it's much easier to plan when you, you, you know, you have a really solid understanding of what price uh, you know, what prices are going to do and the fact that they're stable and you can plan on that. Um, but, you know, similar to 40, year, 40 years ago, the Fed's going to have to do something to bring inflation back to its 2% target. And that something is what you're already seeing unfolding, which is significant rate increases um, until they can get the inflation rate back down to, the, you know, the target. Now, people can argue about how quickly they should do that, but I think they've made it clear in their pronouncements that they are going to do that. Um, and certainly that raises the chances that we're going to go into a recession. Uh, and, you know, whether they will be successful in uh, raising the rates uh, uh, at, a, at a pace that the economy can absorb and we, we, maybe we go into a shallow recession or maybe just a small one, uh, we don't know that now. Um, this is a very tricky thing and they have a difficult job to do. And, and I've I got a lot of confidence that there's very smart people over there working the problem. But in terms of how, you know, this inflation has affected the FDIC, you know, certainly we regulate the banking industry. So, you know, we're concerned about the impact, uh, you know, that inflation is going to have on asset prices, on credit quality. Um, how is it going to impact our insured institutions' capital, liquidity, and safety and soundness? And then just to bring it down to the FDIC level, um, you know, the FDIC, as I said, we, we uh, collect all those insurance premiums. Well, we invest those premiums in treasury securities. And we have a portfolio of about $120 billion worth of those securities that are being held by the deposit insurance fund. Uh, and gosh, uh, just like a lot of fixed income investors, you know, the first quarter of 2022 was a tough quarter. I think the Wall Street Journal called it the worst bond market in 40 years. Um, so if you're a fixed income investor and you're, you know, you're holding, um, you know, fixed income instruments and the rates go way up, well, of course, you're going to get hit with a lot of uh, unrealized losses, which is what happened to us. That's one on the FDIC for sure. Um, and then, of course, I, we're an employer, right? And as an employer or a service organization, so it hit our cross structure. Um, employee wage and benefit costs are 60 to 70 percent of our overall costs. And then, of course, layer on that the fact we use a fair amount of contractors in certain areas and all those contractors have employees um, and, and their labor costs are going up. So this is something that we're going to have to deal with um, uh, as, as many employers are struggling with. You know, employees are seeing this inflation as they go to the grocery store 
and uh, fill up their car and all those things. And they're saying, hey, um, you know, the raise that I need to just stay even is pretty significant. So that's that's an issue that we're going to be dealing with. And then, of course, if there is if we do end up having a recession of any significant depth or duration, then it'll probably lead to more problem banks and potential bank failures. Now, most of your listeners may not know this, but we were pretty fortunate in 2020, 2021 and into 2022 now. We've only had four bank failures. Um, and, and I think part of that is because of all the extraordinary steps that the government took to keep the economy afloat. But, um, you know, that's uh, the, the four bank failures all occurred in 2020, um, three of them after the pandemic. Uh, and so far this year, we've been none in 2021. And so far this year, we haven't had any problems. So um, that doesn't mean that there aren't problems going to be brewing on the horizon. Again, inflation of this uh, magnitude and uncertain duration can cause a lot of dislocations in the economy. So that's a that's a real problem. We're going to have to just stay vigilant and be prepared for, you know, kind of a range of outcomes for that reason. And then, uh, you know, I do want to mention the supply chain disruptions. Those have gotten a lot of press as well. So I, I certainly can't add to the conversation. I just I think everybody that studied this understands it's, it's a really complex problem. Uh, with a lot of causes, and it's going to take a long while to work itself out. Um, people have pointed to the, uh, you know, the COVID lockdowns in China, which obviously is a big supplier of a lot of products around the world. Um, just plain excess demand that uh, the demand for a lot of products is well above the pre-COVID phase, so that's put pressure on the supply chain. And then, of course, we've all read about you know, driver shortages, container shortages. And, you know, something that doesn't get talked about as much is just the rapidly changing consumer uh, consumption pattern. So think about what happened. We're all sitting at our house and boom, we all started offering uh, ordering office chairs and printers and ergonomic uh, lighting and, (laughs) you know, all these kinds of things, bicycles, uh, weight machines, Pelotons, you name it. Um, And, you know, those kinds of things just all hit at once. And everybody wanted the same thing at once. And of course, you know, the, the supply chain's not designed to, to, to um, you know, to produce that way. So there's been a lot of changes and a lot of lessons learned as a result of that. But that's still working itself out and still going to take time. And then finally, you know, you mentioned the uh, Ukraine-Russia uh, conflict. So that, uh, you know, I think uh, was certainly not something people anticipated um, to the extent that actually happened. Uh, obviously, humanitarian disaster, um, but it's had a really big impact, obviously, on the price of fossil fuels, uh, certainly a big impact on the food supply. Um, Ukraine is a huge producer of grain. Uh, and then geopolitical instability, it, it's sort of hard to put a price on that, but uh, it, it, you know, it's certainly, uh, you know, you read a lot now about the changing world order and the assumptions that we've all sort of um, utilized as we think about the world. Uh, in the post-World War II era, are now up, up, up in the air. Um, and there's a big cost to that, um, a potentially big cost. Uh, I mean, just ask yourself, you know, how is uh, Europe going to get through the winter on limited supplies of Russian energy? Is I know it's July right now, but, um, you know, it's right around the corner. So anyway, those are the kinds of things that uh, I've been thinking about when I think about inflation and, and the economy and Sure. Yeah. And I, I remember one thing from business school, I don't remember too much, but one of them was, uh, you know, you shut a factory down for an hour or a day. It's just an insane ripple effect throughout the entire 
chain, right? So imagine being shut down yep. for a year. You know, we're going to be seeing these ripples for years, unfortunately. Yeah, and I will just make one quick other point, and we can move on. I, you know, um, I remember being in business school, and we all talked about um, you know, just-in-time manufacturing, and people prided themselves on holding very lean inventories of parts and all kinds of things. Uh, I think that tune has changed now. <laughs> you know, now people are talking about safety stock, and you know, our our assumptions about being able to order, whether we're consumers or or businesses. Our assumptions about being order order anything and get it within hours or days um, was completely disrupted, um, and and I think and maybe that may be a good thing because I think people are really uh, looking at diversifying their supply chains, but also understanding that while you can increase your profit margins by holding less inventory, uh, there's a cost to that, and and we paid it. <laughs> well, it's back to the insurance concept. That's kind of what you guys do, right? So, yeah, that's it. Wow. Well, uh, yeah. And you also mentioned, uh, you know, your salaries going up now, but how about actually hiring folks? How's that going for you all? Boy, um, again, much smarter people than me have talked about what's happened with the labor market and the great resignation and, you know, the dynamics that have gone on since COVID hit. And there's a lot of, um, explanations for, you know, the trends that have been happening, um, but I will say the, the net result of all that, especially in the services sector where you and I play, uh, it's, it, you know, this, it's a very hyper-competitive labor market. It's very, very tight. Um, the war for talent is real, uh, and we really had to step up our game at the FDIC and adjust our strategies in order to continue to recruit and retain the human resources we need. Um, I just say layer on to that the fact that we have a uh, maturing workforce. Um, this has been a problem in the federal government for a long time, uh, and we're starting to see people depart um, and, uh, you know, needing to replace them uh, in this market is challenging. Um, in some areas of the corporation, we're experiencing higher rates of turnover in some of the tenure buckets that we haven't previously seen. Um, we've, we've had departures from people at the 10 and 15 year tenure level that are getting wooed away by really lucrative offers from uh, banks and consulting firms and, and, and other and other folks. Um, and what we're also seeing as we're putting offers out, the current employers of our prospective hires are now fighting back um, to keep their people. They're offering them raises not to leave, they're offering them retention bonuses not to leave. So we, you know, net net, we're getting more uh, declinations for our offers than we used to, and uh, we're feeling it. Um, we're not meeting our hiring goals in some instances, and that's not okay, because uh, you know, again, we need people to get our work done. Um, the the folks we have are really highly skilled and they're well trained, and you know, it's not surprising to me that people are trying to poach them. Um, you know, they're getting some generous unsolicited offers to make a career move, and some of them are biting. Um, but I would say one thing, we're not just competing on salary dollars, uh, workplace flexibilities are really a key component of all this these days. I mean, we've all heard about how people are real focused on post pandemic, particularly, Hey, I want a lot of flexibility about the, uh, you know, the telework and where, where can I work from and how often do I have to come in and those kinds of things. So we have to keep in mind, this isn't just a dollars and cents issue. It's also, you know, what are the terms and conditions of employment that you're offering? Um, and can you compete? Can you make yourself attractive vis-a-vis other, other firms that are, are battling for the same talent? 
Um, just in that vein, we're also, you know, look, everybody's sort of combating employee burnout. You know, as the pandemic drags on, um, I do think there are some resignations or retirements that are happening because people are just tired. Um, they're tired of working out of their living room. Um, they're tired of not seeing their coworkers. Um, and in some cases, people just had a, a real sea change in their own minds about, hey, uh, what do I want out of life? And, you know, if I'm eligible and I have enough money, maybe it's time for me to go. So you're seeing some of that. I will say this. If the economy continues to slow in the coming months, I think we're going to see some easing in these markets. I think you're already starting to see that. Um, but it's that's far from a certain outcome at this point. Um, and then, of course, we are, you know, with the existing employees that are are, are are bread and butter and are staying and getting the work done, we are trying to assist them to, you know, upskill, uh, reskill some of them just as our, the nature of our work continues to evolve. But uh, we've got some really generous training benefits that, that help that along. So, yeah, the labor market's an interesting area right now. Yeah, it seems like it's all just part of the overall environment we're in right now. These, these are all kind of uh, the pressures and the the problems that come with all, you know, two years of COVID and, you know, all these crises happening, unfortunately, but, um, exactly. so let's not get too morose here, but I did want to get into a couple other topics just to get your thoughts. So, you know, obviously COVID can't go uh, more than one day without talking about that, but, um, you know, <laughs> and we tend to think it's, Oh, is, isn't this over by now? And it's like, oh, I got sick sure. last week. Maybe it's not. So, <laughs> um, what are your, you know, how how is that lingering effect still affecting you all of the FDIC? You know, or are you still kind of in the throes of issues from COVID, or do you feel like things are lightening up a bit, or how's that going? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we're certainly we're in a very different place than we were, you know, in the spring of 2020, obviously. Um, but it's been challenging. Uh, I think everybody's been surprised by how this virus continues to evolve. Maybe epidemiologists aren't surprised because they would tell you, oh, of course, that's what we expected it to happen. But uh, um, I, I use that mountain climber analogy um, if, for folks that do mountain climbing. And there are things called false peaks where you, you get up to the, you know, the summit of a little peak there and you think you're at the top of the mountain only to realize that, it, it you know, you, you look over it and say, uh-oh, <laughs> the top is way over there and it's still further up and higher up. Um, so we've had a lot of that because of the different variants that we've, you know, experienced and the, um, uh, you know, the infection rates have gone way down and we've all taken off our masks and then they've gone way back up. And that can be really frustrating. Um, but I will say, you know, the health and safety of our folks is obviously paramount. We, uh, we went uh, early in the crisis. One of the smarter things we did was get a consultant um, that really knows public health and, and, and uh, you know, they've got MDs on staff and epidemiologists and all that stuff. And so as we were sitting there trying to wade our way through all this data and uncertain and sometimes contradictory advice from health officials, um, we were really able to lean on them and I think do a lot of things that made sense. And I think our employees appreciate the fact that we were so cautious and thoughtful about that. Um, just we've had to do a lot of decision making in, in what I call a sea of uncertainty. Um, you know, if you think back again to April of 2020, people didn't know what was going on. What is this virus and how can we protect people from it? Uh, that kind of thing. Um, we've adapted really well to the change um, to mandatory telework. Uh, thankfully, we had implemented MS Teams uh, in in um, in uh, 2019, late 2019. So 
we were in in a position to do a pretty good job of pivoting when that happened. Uh, um, and we continue to meet our mission, but I'd say not without our challenges. Um, we've learned a lot. You know, examining banks remotely uh, is not, especially community banks, is probably not ideal, uh, and it's certainly less efficient. Um, we are in the banks, back in the banks now selectively. We're kind of relying on volunteers um, to go in, and we're certainly doing more work off-site than we used to. Um, but but we're, we're back in some of the banks. Um, Closing banks, as I said before, we haven't really done much of that, thankfully. So, but the ones we did, we were successful. That's a little trickier because it's hard to do a close a bank closing completely remotely. Um, uh, but we've we've done our our share of uh, you know tweaks to our process to make that work. And uh, you know, look, I I would say we're really blessed. We you know we we have uh, effective and safe vaccines. We have therapeutics at our disposal today. Um, but to your point, you know, the pan this pandemic has a long tail, <laughs> and it's just going to be a challenge to continue to deal with it effectively. So, like every other employer, what we're dealing with, we're we're really dealing with the challenge of return to office. How do we return to office safely? How do we communicate our policies succinctly to our employees and our contractors and visitors? And so, um, we're trying to get the hybrid workplace up, standing up, and 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 do it right. Um, uh, and also trying to sustain and maybe at the same time transform the company's culture. Uh, but our, uh, anyway, we've been we were in mandatory mandatory telework until beginning of April. We're now allowing folks to go in as they as they choose to, and then starting September 6th, we're going to go to what we uh, a lot of people would define as the new normal, um, and we'll see how that goes. Now we do we have. Um, afforded our people a lot greater telework flexibility, even in, in that scenario. So we really will be building a hybrid work environment. And I think, you know, just like every other employer, it's really an experiment. How is this going to go? Um, we'll, you know, we're going to have to make a lot of adjustments and be flexible, but uh, I think we've got a really good plan and I think it's going to, it's going to work fine. Yep. We're all still, you know, doing this together, trying to figure out, but that's good. Yes, we are. So just had a couple more questions for you, but I definitely wanted to talk about technology. It's definitely one of my favorite topics on the podcast. Uh, so I'd love to hear about, you know, what is the FDIC, you know, the CFO shop? What are you all doing as far as, you know, keeping ahead of all these technological changes that never end? Or is there any particular technology you're, you know, investing in right now or interested in? And how do you find kind of like the right people and, and funding to keep that moving forward? Yeah. Um, you know, I'll start out by saying, man, that's the, pace of change is just a dizzying, right? Um, when I think about all the different, uh, and that's, to me, one of the great things about this country. I mean, the, the amount of entrepreneurship in this space is just unbelievable. And the amount of venture capital that's been pouring into all kinds of startups that are trying to, to uh, you know, improve on what we have and um, utilize technology to do really neat uh, things. It's, it's awesome. I think the challenge for somebody like uh, myself or my, you know, my peers in the CFO community is just staying on top of it. Uh, it's it's overwhelming how much is going on and how fast things are changing. And when you're trying to make, uh, especially investment decisions in that kind of environment, it is it's tough. Um, and you've got to really educate yourself and learn as much as you can. And ultimately, you know, again, make decisions in that cone of uncertainty and, and hope that most of them are decent decisions. Um, 
I, you know, the relationship between the CFO and the CIO, uh, we are joined at the hip. I think for a successful organization, that has to be the case. Uh, I know in, in my case, um, the CIO does not report to me. Some other organizations, the CIO does report to the, the CFO. But it, it, in, in either model, um, you've got to be joined at the hip, and you've really got to have a talented CIO that can multitask. Um, I was talking about the talent shortage. I mean, IT talent is in particularly short supply. And uh, boy, you talk about people, um, whether it's our contractor community or our, our folks ourselves, you know, really good IT talent is getting bid away constantly, uh, just constantly. And that turnover has a really significant cost. Uh, no question about it. Um, because if you've ever worked on one of these large scale systems projects, um, the institutional memory is one of the reasons that it does well. Um, and when you have a lot of turnover, that, that really, I think, takes away from it. Um, digital transformation, uh, I think one of the best things that's happened as a result of this crisis is digital transformation, you know, just got accelerated, um, you know, tenfold. I mean, on steroids, people were forced to stop printing and routing paper around. And uh, I think that's been a great thing. Um, and my, uh, you know, my mantra to my folks is take advantage of that. You know, we've got a window of opportunity. Uh, make sure that we start changing the way we do business and continue to, um, you know, adopt the smart changes that came as a result of the pandemic. Uh, I would say that a big part of that transformation is cultural, though. It really is a mindset of, of saying, hey, I need to digitize the organization. I need to automate my processes. Um, and I need to let go of the, uh, the past. Um, another thing is the migration to the cloud. Um, I love people, uh, you know, people make it sound so easy. It's, uh, what's the, what's the term lift and shift? Um, I, I wish it were so easy. <laughs> it really sounds great in theory, but the, the, the truth is there's a lot of systems complexity and systems interconnectedness that make that exercise actually a really daunting challenge. Um, nevertheless, it's a challenge that we're going to be, um, you know, facing, and we're we're continually looking to do that. Um, I don't know any federal agency that's not trying to shrink their data center essentially back to zero. Um, I'm sure there are exceptions, and I'm not saying we're going to zero either, but you know, that's sort of the, you know, the goal in some sense. Uh, the the cloud makes a lot of sense, but it, it's not an easy journey to get there. It's an expensive one, and it's a painful one, but it's it's one that's worth, uh, you know, taking. Um, and then, you know, I could talk about data. Um, you know, people talk about data analytics and AI. Um, I, I like to talk about data. So if you don't have good data, um, <laughs> you know, data analytics and AI are sort of a pipe dream. So, uh, you know, we've got a brand new CDO um, that we hired uh, away from uh, the Air Force. He's a great guy, uh, and he's going to be helping us in that space. Um, we talked about, you know, IT capacity and dollars. So, I mean, the, the problem with IT is it, it is a, it's like, sort of like Pac-Man. It eats everything, right? So there's never enough money for the IT demands um, that people put on the, the CIO. Uh, and for us, you know, because we're not appropriated, we have less of a fight with the money, but capacity is an issue for us. There are only so many projects that our system can handle doing at one time. And they're really, the demand really, really is insatiable. So that sort of leads to my next point, which is uh, citizen-led development. Um, you know, people have struggled with that concept, but um, as we get more and more um, user-friendly, low-code, no-code, uh, no-code software, uh, uh, 
um, you know, we, I think you have to use the business uh, lines to do some of that work um, because the, the, the CIO of the organization cannot and probably should not be doing all of it. Um, but the trick to that is, is putting good guardrails around it. So if you're going to have citizen-led development, you've got to have the right controls, but the controls have to be uh, calibrated so that, it, it, you know, they're not overkill. Otherwise, that whole that whole thing sort of falls apart. Um, and then I'll just mention quickly um, cyber. So I talked about the Ukraine-Russia conflict. I mean, obviously, everybody is highly concerned that the probability for cyber attacks in this kind of geopolitical environment is much higher. Um, and I'm sure that that is the case. And uh, you know, our 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 intelligence folks are being very vigilant about it, but we're, we're doing a lot of um, reminding of our own employees about, you know, phishing and all kinds of things because we're concerned about that. Um, and then just finally in that space is uh, zero trust. Uh, you know, again, we could talk about that all day, but um, that is a big ticket item that we're working on right now. And again, we have a new hire a guy named uh, Stephen Hasselhorst from DOD that's going to help us on that journey. So a lot going on in the technology area. That's great. Yeah, and I just wanted to tag on to that citizen development piece of it. I mean, I think that's a great thing. You know, and all agencies agencies should be doing the same. You know, get your employees to to dabble in there because honestly, this is just the next tool, the next evolution of all our jobs. You know, I mean, think back how many years Absolutely. ago. You know, we didn't. Maybe you never knew how to use Excel. Now everybody's an Excel expert. Well, you know, pretty soon we'll all be bot makers, and you know, because the tools are so easy to use that, and it's just you know, makes your job easier. So I think it's just something that that's sort of the evolution of, of what we're going to be doing anyway. You know, these are just going to be tool everyday tools, just like, you know, Word and Excel are today, right? Absolutely. And um, I will say that, you know, there's a, a cohort of folks that work for me that love learning this stuff and they're just chomping at the bit to get, you know, to, to for me to you know, basically let them loose on the organization so that they can go, um, you know, utilize these tools to add value, to automate processes, whether it's reconciliations or, you know, any kind of thing like that. So, um, you know, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, for folks like that, you don't want them to lose their enthusiasm. So you've got to give them the tools, but make sure that there's some discipline around how that happens. All right. Well, we're getting close to the end here, but I, I wanted to, I know we were thinking about enterprise risk management, but honestly, that, that might be a good one for an affirm podcast in the future. Maybe I can call you back. Um, but maybe we can just finalize here with, uh, you know, let's talk about yourself a little bit. We can kind of end it with uh, your your experiences as a, a leader at FDIC. As you mentioned, you've been there quite a long time. That's pretty impressive these days. Folks tend to jump around, but you've been there for a long time. Um, <laughs> so why don't you tell us, you know, why were you there so long? Why, you know, and then also what did you kind sure. of, uh, how did your leadership and management styles evolve over the years? And yeah, just give us a little insight. Sure. Yeah. So I actually, uh, I came to the FDIC, uh, I got my MBA and then I was working for uh, one of the big, uh, well, boy, I'm dating myself, one of the big eight accounting firms, which is now the big four. But, uh, and uh, then I, I came down to, uh, to Washington to work on the savings and loan crisis. And honestly, I didn't have any aspirations to be a government employee my for the bulk of my career. Um, but yeah, again, the FDIC was such a great place to work, and they gave me so many a series of really great jobs. So I just never found a, a, re, a good reason to leave. So here I am. <laughs> but uh, you know, in terms of uh, leadership and management style, um, you know, I 
I said that I cut my teeth, uh, you know, during a crisis, you know, managing during a crisis. And, you know, when you're leading in a crisis, it just teaches you a lot of valuable lessons. And you, again, you make, learn how to make decisions in conditions of really great uncertainty. Um, you know, you, you, you figure it out. Hey, I'm not waiting for perfect information. That's kind of the fool's errand. Um, and, you know, I think for survival, uh, you really have to uh, quickly develop a skill for spotting, recruiting, and sort of nurturing talent because you only succeed through the efforts of others. So if you become a talent magnet, that is a great way to succeed um, because you, you end up getting a lot of great people around you that do phenomenal work. And um, if you're humble enough, you don't take credit for it, but it, it sort of shines off on you anyway. Um, and then, you know, you make mistakes, you learn to move on and fight the next battle. Uh, hopefully you're a little wiser. So resiliency is a big thing. You're not going to get everything right. So be resilient. The world's going to throw you a lot of curveballs. Um, but, you know, just remember it's how that you react to those that matter. Um, and then I do say to folks that are coming up, because I do a lot of mentoring, um, Remember, people are watching you. As you're a senior leader, they're watching your behavior, they're watching your attitude, your work ethic, the way you treat others. Um, you know, there's that old adage about model the behavior you want to see in others, and it's it's always worked pretty well for me. Um, I also try to inject humor into everything we do. Um, try to remember to smile. Uh, you know, people want to have fun at work. Yes, what you do is important and can get really intense sometimes, but you know, that, that stuff, you know, that stuff really uh, matters. Have, make sure people have fun. Celebrate your team's accomplishments. Um, and as far as style, for me, I'm just, I'm honest, I'm direct, uh, I humble, I'm grateful. Um, I think you need to be generous and compassionate as well. And then in terms of messaging, just be really clear about your objectives and expectations. So, you know, people want to know, what do you want from me? <laughs> when do you want it? Um, you know, what are the limitations I'm operating under? I think if you have those conversations up front as you're doling out um, assignments and responsibilities, that really helps. And then, um, especially during the, I'll, 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 I'll finish with this one, especially during the pandemic, remember to touch base frequently with your people. Uh, it's been harder. You, that's really had to, uh, there's no uh, random running into people in the cafeteria these days. Um, you have to do some outreach to make that happen. And so I think that's, that's really important stuff. Um, anyway, I think that's, that's enough uh, uh, management wisdom for me. <laughs> no, this is great. No, I appreciate that. And I think uh, listeners definitely got something good out of that. So, but yeah, Brett, no, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, this was a great conversation and uh, really appreciate your insights. Well, thank you, Paul. And uh, I'll, I'll be talking with you soon. Thank you. That's our show. Thanks for tuning in. AGACGFM.org is where you go. Plenty more podcasts. Plenty more on the way. I think we have the uh, internal controls and fraud event coming up. So we're getting into September here. So I hope you keep tuning in. And until next time, this is your host, Paul Marshall, for Accountability Talks with AGA.